So 2 Peter, if you have your Bibles, uh, chapter 1, uh, we have two more sessions in 2 Peter chapter 1 to finish this up. The last three parts of chapter 1 are all about the significance and the importance of God's Word. And in our current culture today, there's an important question for every Christ follower in regard to what validates our faith more than anything else. And so there are some within the church who say this, um, my personal experience validates whether something is true or not in my life. And so that's one view of things. And so people are constantly on a search for spiritual experiences. The danger with that is, is you have to always discern the spirits. Um, we can have spiritual experiences, but not necessarily all of those are of God. And sometimes there's misunderstanding even of some of those things. And so there's a caution that needs to be there. Spiritual experiences are great, right? We love them. We want to experience them. So then the, then the second thing is, and so is it spiritual experience that validates our faith, or is it the Scripture? And those two things are, are debated a lot, talked about a lot, um, things that we wrestle with and things that we are trying to figure out on our own. And over the next two sessions that we go through... Um, 2 Peter 1, as he finishes up this chapter, we will deal with those. Today we're going to talk a little bit more about an experience, but then the next time we get into this, Peter is going to share with us there's actually something way more of a validation, way more security is connected to God's Word than our personal experience. And so here's where we're going to go, just kind of let you know up front. Peter's going to share with us today, how can you and I rely on the written testimony in Scripture, how can we rely on it? What are some things that we can see to say, okay, this is God's Word. What, what is here on the page is something I ought to follow, I ought to base my life in it. And so he's going to make sure that we know this. And so if you're in the room today and you're a skeptic, um, I may not fully convince you today because um, you wrestle with the authority of Scripture anyway. Um, and so Peter is writing to Christians, and he's writing to Christians to remind them why the Scripture for a believer is authoritative and it ought to be followed. Now, if you are a bit of a skeptic today, I think Peter's going to lay forth for us some really good things that I think if you will be open to listen to those, I think you will see, okay, um, this is something I ought to really seriously consider, that this is God's Word. It has come to us from His heart and it truly is God's Word. And so there are a lot of questions that are um, thrown at the Scripture. Questions like this. So is the Bible really a book of truth? Is it a certain and sure word to follow? How did the writers get this information that has come to us? Are the Scriptures forgeries? Or are they just made up things that are there? Why just these books that were included? There were other books that were written at that time, so why just these books? Are these the original words that have come to us in 2019, or have things been changed? And on 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 it goes with the attacks at Scripture. So in these next two pieces as we study chapter 1, Peter's going to, I believe firmly, because I've really studied it deeply really well, and I've walked in God's Word for 30-something years now. And I know this book to be true. I know it's not just something that's been made up. I know it to be solid and true. But Peter's going to set forth for us in a very clear way why you and I need to see the Bible as reliable and trustworthy and, 
and why you and I ought to base our life on and in its counsel. So as Peter writes to these Christians, earlier in his first letter, they were under severe persecution, and so they needed guidance in regard to how do you deal with persecution. A couple of years later now, he's having to write to them again, and there's a new thing. It's not pressure from without, from the Roman government and the persecution that was happening there. The church was having internal problems from false teaching. Non-biblical things had begun to drift into the church, and so this church needed counsel in regard to how do I defend and contend for the truth of the gospel, and how do I, in the midst of that, maintain biblical integrity. And so not only is it important for us to recognize false teaching, but it is also very vital for us in our lives that we are able to discern the blatant as well as some of the subtle lies that are connected uh, to the attacks on Scripture. And so basically, in Second Peter, three chapters, he basically has three things that he sets forth in all three of these chapters. One is know your salvation. First part of chapter one, he is clearly talked about this great salvation that has come to us other part chapter one know the word of God know the scriptures and that will allow you to know the great salvation that's come and then know your in a sense I guess your sanctification your growth in dealing with things that are being taught and the things that you will hear and so you need to know how do you live faithfully as we wait for the second coming And for all of us, I just want to remind us this morning, we've got to have a place to go when when there are things told to us, when there are things proclaimed, even by maybe well-meaning people, but they do not line up with Scripture. We need a place to go to have discernment to say, that is true, it is not true. And so the only place that we can go, and again, I just... I want you to think logically just a little bit. Not everything's connected with God's will is logically. To go give your life as a martyr from a human perspective is not logical. Because logical is, okay, I'm going I'm to make sure my life is safe. But sometimes the very best thing to do is to live passionately for Jesus, to go to the nations and to give your life. And if it costs you your life, it's the most glorious thing that you could ever do. Because you're living in God's heart, in God's purpose. And so... Logic is not always the case, but God has given us logic, right? He's given us reason. He's given us the ability to look at things. And so, so in 2019, if the Scripture is not reliable and trustworthy, then where in the world do we go to discern lies? Where, where, where does a Christian go? And so in light of that, I have this One, because I've lived it. One, because I've read it. One, because I've proclaimed it. One, because I've seen it transform other people. I, beyond a shadow of a doubt, stand firm this morning to say this. The only reliable place to go in a world of lies is the Scripture. And I believe God has the power and the authority that what He originally wanted the writers to write, they were written down. And I think that they have come to us as they were originally written down, and we can trust them to be reliable um, in our lives. So let's look now, 2 Peter chapter 1, and I want to walk through some really important things for us to see this morning. And I want to go back to where we were last week, and I want to read from verse 12 all the way to 21, so we can kind of see where we're going, where we were, where we're going to be today, and where we will go 
um, after today. Verse 12, 2 Peter 1. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along or led by the Holy Spirit. So let me just remind us where we were last week, and then we're going to walk through um, 16 through 18 today. So last week, Peter shares with this group of believers. He shared with them in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, this incredible salvation that has come to us. And then he talks about, in light of this great salvation that has come to you, there are some things that you ought to do. There are qualities connected to the character of Jesus that we strive for, like moral excellence and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection. And so he lays out for us great salvation that has come to you. Responsibility now that you're in this salvation. And then he says these words when we come to verse 12. He says this, listen, here's the deal. You've come to know some great things. And here's what I want to say to you. I'm about to die. It's about to be over with for me. Um, As long as I'm in this body, I'm going to tell you some things. Because I know that the putting off of my body is going to be is coming because Jesus told me this is coming. And so here's the last thing I want to tell you. And the last thing I want to tell you is this, is I don't have some great new revelation for you. I've got the same revelation that I've already proclaimed to you, and it's this. And it's of first importance. It's Jesus Christ came and he died and he rose. And this is the critical thing. You have got to know this. And so he says to them, listen, I think it's right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. What did he want to remind them of? He says he's already told them. You know the truth. You know these qualities. I've already proclaimed this thing. And so I want to remind you that after I am gone, so that after my departure, Peter says in verse 15, that you may be able to recall these things. And so he's telling them, listen, I'm going to write some things down that I've already told you. And they're going to be written down so that when I'm gone, you don't have to be dependent upon me. You've got an authoritative written letter from someone who is an eyewitness of Jesus. And you can trust my testimony because I heard him, I saw him, I touched him, I was with him, I beheld it all, I experienced it, I heard it. And you can rely on what I have told you. And so Peter says this, there's a 
practice of faithful repetition that needs to take place in the church. And I said it last week, why do we do Psalm 119 every Sunday? You know, can we move on to something new, somebody might ask? No. Why? Why do we need to? Why is Psalm 119, by the way, the longest chapter in the Bible of all the inspired writers? Why is Psalm 19 so long and all it does is affirm the truth of God's word? You know why? Because we need to be reminded. And we need to be told and reminded what is critical for us. And what's critical for us is to stay established in the truth of God's word. And so in verses 12 through 15, Peter says, listen, I've taught you stuff. Now I'm reminding you of stuff that you are already established in. And I want you to follow it. I want you to embrace it. And I want you to go forward. Now from that now, we get to verse 16 through 18. And this is his next thing. And he's going to tell us now, here is why you can rely on this faithful repetition and proclamations of the story of Jesus and the Scripture. And it brings us to point number two this morning, and it's this. And I want to talk just for a moment. This is kind of a summary of where we're going over the next two times in First Peter and Second Peter. Is I want to talk about the foundation of the Scripture's reliability. So in fifteen, excuse me, from sixteen to eighteen, he gives us the first why, first reason why we can rely upon the Scriptures, and then from verses eighteen through twenty-one or nineteen through twenty-one, actually. He's going to give us the other reason why we can trust in the Scriptures. So again, as I said a while ago, there are a lot of questions out there in the world today outside the church that are attacking. There are also questions within the church that attack the the Scripture. And so so Peter's going to set forth for us, here is why you can rely that God has spoken, that the Scriptures are reliable. And the first one is simply this. He says this, you can rely on the Scriptures because the apostles who wrote this, those those who wrote these original accounts of Jesus, they literally saw the resurrected Jesus. So there's an authority with the Scripture that these people who wrote the Scripture heard Jesus teach. They had encounters with the risen Lord where He taught them on the day of the resurrection. And He reminded them of who he was and what the Old Testament scriptures point was to point to Jesus. And so on the day of the resurrection, Jesus spends the, spends the majority again. This cannot be lost to us. Luke 24 establishes this for us. On the day of the resurrection, Jesus walks to Emmaus with two guys. He spends the majority of that afternoon unfolding all of the prophecies from the Old Testament to these two guys about himself from the scriptures. As he does so, their hearts burn within them. Later that night, he appears to the apostles in Jerusalem who are waiting in a room. And what does he do that night on the, on the resurrection, that first Sunday night with the apostles? He opens up their mind to the scriptures and reminds them that from the Psalms, from the prophets, and from the law, they all had a testimony about the coming of Jesus. And so Peter here is now saying this, listen, Jesus has passed this on to us. We've seen it. We've heard it. He's entrusted this to us. We have written things down. We have passed it on to you. And you can rely on the scriptures because of the apostolic testimony of the eyewitnesses who saw and heard the things that Jesus spoke about. Secondly, he says in 19 through 21, we can rely on the scriptures reliability 
because what he says mainly in verse 21, the Holy Spirit spoke to men and he carried them along. In other words, it just means this. The Holy Spirit was a part of and leading, not a part of. The Holy Spirit was the key part in the writing of Scripture. So watch with me here. We're going to move to the next point. As a Christian, why should we rely on this? So here's the Apostle Peter. He says, you can rely on what has come to you because those of us who wrote this, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We saw His glory. We heard His teaching. He called us out to follow Him. He poured His life into us. He taught us. He taught us. He taught us on the day that He was resurrected. He came and He taught us again. And He, made, he wanted to make sure that we understood that the Scriptures in the Old Testament pointed to Him. He's the fulfillment of all of them. And so he wanted us to remind him. And so then he's told us, he said, when he, on the day that he ascended, he said this, and now I want you to go, all the stuff that I've told you, all the stuff that you have seen, now I want you to go to the nations, and I want you to teach them to observe everything that I told you to observe. And I want you to teach them, I want you to proclaim me, and you to teach these things. And so Peter says, listen, you can rely on the Scriptures, because those who wrote it down, they had encounters with Jesus. So you can count on eyewitness testimony. Secondly, you can count on this from 19 to 21, is that the Holy Spirit was leading every bit of the writing of Scripture. Now, <clears throat> it'll be a few weeks now because of my upcoming surgery that's happening. When we get to 19 through 21, um, I'm going to talk about some of the specific attacks and some of the counter things as to why some of the attacks are a little bit in some ways, ridiculous in some of the things because um, they're not come, they, 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 they come from not a place of wanting to really know something, but they come from a place of just blindness and hatred of God and, and, and the Scripture. And so, um, so there's some things there that we will talk about in the days ahead, um, knowing that there are, there's a reason the Gospel of Thomas was not included in the canon. There's a reason why some of the things were not there because they were not written. Watch this. Here's why. Just preview. Some of these books that are considered extra biblical books were not written by those who were eyewitnesses. They were not written in the first century. They were written in the second century. And some of them even a little bit later than that. And so they're not considered authoritative. And here's why. They were not written by eyewitnesses. And so these, there's, these things are just important to us. And Peter wants us to get this. He wants us to see this. You can rely on the Scripture because those who wrote it were eyewitnesses. And secondly, the Holy Spirit led in every kind of way in regard to that. All right, now let's walk through what Peter has for us in 16 through 18 and why we believe um, we can rely on the Scripture. The first one is just simply this, is what I've been hammering home, and I've got to hammer it home again, is the foundation of the apostolic testimony. So look, look in verse 16 just for a moment. We're going to go through the first part of verse 19. And I want you to notice a personal pronoun that starts with a W. What is that personal pronoun? We. So look with me in 16. For we did not follow 
when we made known to you the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 17, for when he, when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Look at 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Then the first part of 19. And we, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So, so look back up here. Six times in 16 through the first part of 19a, he uses this, this personal pronoun. We, 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 we. Peter's not saying, I'm the only one who saw this. Peter's saying, there were other people with me, and we saw and we heard. And so, so this is not one of those things where I'm just kind of making this up and there's no validation. There were other people with me when we saw Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. We saw His glory revealed, and we heard the voice of the Father say, That's my Son I am absolutely pleased with Him. You listen to Him. You follow Him. You embrace Him. And so we affirm the Scriptures because the foundation, again, are the apostles who have this testimony who say we are this. It's not an individualized thing. And what happened with these guys is amazing. And we'll, talk, we'll finish up today with this. But they got to taste And see something that was amazing. Now watch. They are living in the midst of the first coming of Jesus. But up on the mountain. They get a foretaste. Not of the first coming of Jesus. But of which coming of Jesus. The second. Pretty amazing thing that they have up on the mountain. Now they're living in the midst of the first coming. Which is pretty incredible. But up on the mountain they got a taste of what was it going to be like. When the glorious Lord is not veiled in a human body anymore, but the glory of who He is is just revealed. And up on the mountain, they get a taste of it. So Paul, even himself, affirmed why we should trust the Scriptures because of the foundation of the apostolic ministry. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, listen to this. Why is this so significant, what Paul writes here? Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Why is this so significant? We we need to not, let's use our head just for a moment, and not just say, well, those guys, God... God spoke to them, and then they, prophets, God, God revealed word to the prophets, and then they took the word to Israel. The apostles encountered Jesus, saw the resurrected Lord, led by the Spirit, wrote Scripture down. But we're not just pointing toward men. Watch. We're pointing to writings also. God spoke to the prophets They preached, and what did they do? They wrote them down. So when Paul talks about here, the prophets, the foundation of our faith is what the prophets were proclaiming. What were the prophets proclaiming? Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah came. The apostles were with him, eyewitnesses and earwitnesses. 
And so they've written this down. And so the church is built on the foundation of the proclamation of the prophets and the written testimony of the prophets and also the proclamation of the apostles and the written testimony of the apostles. And so we, we, we trust our lives to the scripture because the foundation is secure. And their testimony is true and it gives credibility to our faith. I love this. Hebrews 12, 1. We don't live for, we don't live for those who wrote the scripture. We don't, uh, we don't worship them. But I think in a sense we give some honor to them, the right kind of honor, that they were faithful. We love Hebrews 11. Great hall of faith. Noah built the ark. Abraham, testimony of Moses, and all of that great, great thing. But then you get to Hebrews chapter 12, and it says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And I think 12.1 just tells us this. One of the things why we embrace the scripture is that there are those who have gone before us who tasted, experienced, saw, heard the reality and the power of God. And their testimony is true because they didn't buy into some kind of lie but they had been encountered by a living God who spoke the world into existence and then He spoke into their life and their lives were incredibly transformed. And so we look at them and there are a great cloud of witnesses that have written a testimony to you and I, calling you and I to be like them, to love Jesus and to long for Jesus. And so we trust the Scripture, Peter says, for this reason, it was founded on the ministry of the apostles who gave it a trustworthy testimony to us. And so there is this tremendous credibility of our resting and trusting in the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Next reason is this. Look at the next part of verse 16. So just we, we, Peter's saying, okay, I'm just not I, we. So there's a foundation of the apostolic testimony. And secondly, we follow gospel revelation, Peter says, not myths. So Luke 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Your translation may say fables, tales, whatever the case may be. So here's what he's saying. We did not give our lives to following made-up stories about Jesus Christ. It's not what we did. Peter says, listen, this, this phrase, did not follow, means to rest upon. It's the idea of give your whole life to something. So watch what Peter's saying. Myself, James, John, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, all of us that were called to be the apostles, all of us that saw the risen Christ, the Apostle Paul becomes one of these as well down the road. When Jesus reveals himself in Acts 9 to Paul. And, and, and Peter here is saying this. Listen, we based our whole lives, rested our whole lives on this revelation that Jesus Christ was here. He was real. We saw, we heard, we experienced. We saw it all. 
We heard it. And the reality is simply this. We didn't make this up. And so we rest our whole life on not a lie, not a cleverly devised myth, which, by the way, in the Greek means this, to cleverly imagine a story, to skillfully invent a story. And this is what Peter's saying. We didn't skillfully invent some story that that God came down from heaven and He took on flesh and He was born in humility in Bethlehem. He did all these amazing miracles that thousands and thousands and thousands of people saw. And there were testimonies that people who were blind from birth could now see, people who couldn't walk, they could walk now, people who had infirmities were healed. There were people, thousands that day, maybe up to 20,000, where He took a few loaves of bread and some fish and fed everybody. See, there were people who saw this, and it was being passed down. And there were people, according to 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 people, a bunch of people still alive, who saw the resurrected Jesus. And basically what Paul was saying when he wrote 1 Corinthians was, you go find some of those people, and they'll tell you, yeah, I saw him. He died on the cross, and on the third day, I'm telling you, he rose again. I saw him. I talked to him. I touched him. And so, Peter says, listen, I didn't rest my whole life and suffer persecution in prison and jail for some kind of cleverly devised story. Every martyr, every apostle was martyred except for John. People will die for the truth, won't they? Pretty rare people die for a lie. And Peter's saying this, listen, we didn't make up this stuff about Jesus. We didn't make up this stuff. It wasn't artfully devised. We're like, okay, let's come up with a really cool story and let's give our lives to it. Let's go to the nations and die for this lie. No, it's not what they did. He's saying this, listen, I, I saw it. And not only did I see it, and it wasn't a made-up story, it was before my eyes. I'm just telling you, it is absolutely true. And the world mocks us and says, oh, y'all, that's just a bunch of fables. There's no such thing as miracles and all of that stuff. And Peter just says this, listen, my testimony, what I teach, what I write, and what we take to the nations is is not grounded in cleverly designed cute kid stories. But I'm just here to tell you, they're real because I lived them. I was there. Paul was also dealing with this reality within the church. Listen to this, 1 Timothy 1.3. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths. 2 Timothy, that was 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, 4. And many people, 4, 3, let's do it, let's do it all. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander away into myths or fables. Titus one thirteen. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So watch. Guess what was going on in the first century? Y'all just made that stuff up. 
It's just like Greek mythology. Y'all just made up all this stuff about Jesus. And Peter's saying, no, no. I saw it. I saw it. I was there. And I heard it. But there were people that were rejecting it. So the first trustworthy reality of the Scripture is it's built on the testimony of the apostles. Secondly, it's gospel revelation. It's not fables. It's not some kind of made-up story. And thirdly, it became the faithful proclamation of the apostles. They didn't go everywhere just saying, man, <clears throat> you, ever, you ever lied before and got to keep, you try to keep the lie going and you got to, what do you have to do? You have to be more creative about your lying, you know? You remember that? None of us lie, but remember when you were a kid and you lie and stuff, you know? Um, hopefully we don't lie today, but if you remember when you were a kid and you're trying to hide stuff from your parents, you lie, and then you got to be more creative to lie and got to be more creative, and then eventually what happens? It unravels, does it not? And here we are 2,000 years later, and Christianity is not unraveled. Why? With all the attacks, it's the most attacked religion in the history of the world. Why is it not unraveled? Well, could it be that it's true? That there's a faithful testimony in regard to the eyewitnesses, and it's true? And these eyewitnesses didn't make up stories that they had to cleverly think, okay, how do we, how do we kind of keep this together? How do, we, how do we make this in unity with everything that Moses wrote and everything the prophets wrote? How do we, how do we keep all of this in unity? How do, we, how do we put all this together? Boy, it's just it's impossible to be able to do that. So what we know is this, is all of this is true. There's a unity from the Old Testament and the New Testament that is incredibly beautiful. And so here are these apostles who saw it, didn't make it up, and then they took it to the nations. They tasted the glory, saw the glory, heard the glory, and they went everywhere telling everyone about the story. This phrase here, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the Greek it means to impart a new revelation. And this is what he's saying here. When we came to you and we told you that Jesus Christ died and rose again, it was something that you never heard. It was a new revelation. But when you heard it, you believed it. And this is a fulfillment of what Moses wrote about. This is a fulfillment of what the prophets wrote about. And now we, we have proclaimed to you the clear, full picture of what the Scriptures were about. And it was about Jesus. It's the same word that the shepherd said outside of Bethlehem. Angels came in Bethlehem. You can go see the Savior. And it says this. They said, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. That word known there means this new revelation, this revelation that the Messiah has finally come. And this message that they proclaimed was a continuation of what the prophets began and now in their teaching and writing with the apostles, they gave a complete, clear picture of what the prophets and Moses were writing about. Now, you got your thinking cap on? You have your thinking cap on? I'm asking, yes, you got your thinking cap? Put it on if you don't, okay? My dad used to tell me that all the time when I was a knucklehead. He would say, where did you put your thinking cap? And I'm like, okay, I don't know where that is. But 
So put your, turn your brain on for a moment. <clears throat> Listen to what Peter says. We made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word coming in the Greek is used all through the New Testament. Guess what coming in every context and every writer who uses it, guess what coming it refers to? First or second? This one. Now, this, this week, as it settled into me this week, I thought, man, what an amazing thing that these guys are writing about. So here's what they're talking about. Every context. Matthew 24, four times. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, this word, parousia in the Greek, is used coming four times. 2 Thessalonians, John uses it in 1 John 2, 28. And so it, every place it is used, it's connected to the second coming. What's the biggest attack in 2 Peter that people, that Peter's dealing with? The second coming. Peter... Now, writing to these believers, uses an illustration, using a Greek word, only connected to the second coming, up on the mountain, likely Mount Hermon, in the Caesarea Philippi area. Watch this. In the first coming, they're there, first coming of Jesus, up on the mountain, Jesus is transformed Peter uses this word to describe not the first coming of Jesus, watch, but the second coming of Jesus. Watch how amazing the Mount of Transfiguration is. So when Peter says this, we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's referring to the mountain which happened in the first coming, but it gave a glimpse of the second coming. And we're going to... I'm going to show you something really amazing here in just a moment. So watch this. Here's what Peter's saying. Listen, I proclaim to you this. He's coming again. And I got to see it and taste it. And I got to hear the Father speak about him and affirm it. So every single aspect about this is, even though it's in his first coming, the context of what Peter is writing and the, word this, the way this word is used is a reference to the second coming and one of the great scriptures that speak about this word is simply this. In the Greek, it, it, it's a word that, that described, watch this, it described the coming of a king to a city where the king stays. Is there a scripture that indicates anything like that? Yeah, there is. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command and the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and watch this, and so we will always be with the Lord. Watch. When he comes back, if we've died and we've gone to heaven, Revelation 19 gives us this picture, we return with him with the armies of God. If we're here, we meet him up in the air. And then Paul says, and we're always going to be with him. The king is coming back, and we will always be with him forever and ever. Now, the Spirit lives inside of us. Jesus is forever interceding for us up into heaven. But there's coming a time where that, that 
kind of separation that's there now, it's not going to happen anymore. Because when he comes back, he's coming back to stay. So I want to just remind us of something I think is important. Why should we give such a defense to the doctrine of the second coming and the truth of the second coming? What's the implication if he's not going to come back? Well, as Peter wrote this second letter to these believers, the major objection that the false teachers were giving was attacking the second coming of Jesus. And so that's why he wrote this second letter. They were denying its truth in every kind of way. And so why is the defense of the second coming so critical for Christ's followers? Why did Peter need to write this and be so passionate about it? Well, here's why. The end of the ages culminates in what? Jesus. The end of the age rests solely in His second coming. And if Jesus doesn't come back, then everything about the gospel and everything about the writers loses its impact because Jesus placed a lot of emphasis on His second coming and the gospel writers and the writers of the epistles did as well. And if He does not return, then He is not the end of all history. And he's not the one in whom all things culminate, according to the scriptures. So again, watch this. We defend the second coming of Jesus. Because if he's not the culmination of all things, then much of what we read in the scripture cannot be relied upon anymore. So we defend it, and that's why Peter's defending it. He's saying, listen, we didn't make this up. But I saw it, tasted it, and I heard it and if we can't trust the revelation of his second coming then how can we fully trust the writings of his first coming about his first coming so we believe all of this to be true we believe he came we believe he left we believe he's coming again he's going to establish his kingdom and we will forever be with him and so peter says listen we saw it i tasted even a glimpse of this coming. So look, he says, and here's the next thing. So not only is it built on the testimony of the apostles, um, it's, not, it's gospel revelation. It's not a bunch of made-up stories. It was grounded in eyewitness testimony, and they are faithful and reliable witnesses. Faithful and reliable witnesses. And I will say this about those false teachers who attack the Scripture. I think the burden of proof lies with the false teachers back in Peter's day, and I think it lies there today. Because here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, listen to me, brothers and sisters, false teachers make a bunch of claims um, like we do about Jesus. We're saying certain things about Jesus, but here's the difference. They were not eyewitnesses. I was. And I can say James was with me and John was with me. Bartholomew wasn't up on the mountain, but they were there. Thaddeus was there. And he saw Jesus heal people. He saw these things. See, the burden of proof is not on the eyewitnesses, for they are the ones who were there and actually saw and heard. That's why in a court of law, what do lawyers rely upon? Eyewitness testimony. It just stands. It stands. What did they witness? Well, Peter says, we witnessed his majesty. Now, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 16 for a moment. This is where we're going to close. Matthew 16. And I want you to go to verse 27, chapter 17. We'll get there in just a moment. Is this story that Peter is relating here. 
Matthew 16, verse 27. So Jesus just talked about taking up your cross and following him. And then verse 27, it says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now let's just stop for a moment. This is the first coming when Jesus says this, right? Okay, I'm not trying to trick you. Is this the first coming when he says this? Yes. Okay? So he's standing there with who? The apostles. And he tells them, some of you standing here that I'm talking today, you're you're not going to taste death until you see the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, me. When you see me in the second coming. Now, let's just stop for a moment and think logically. Did Jesus' second coming occur in their lifetime? No, it did not. It hasn't happened yet. So what in the world is Jesus talking about? Some of you here are going to see me coming in my second coming glory before you taste death. You know what he is referring to? The Mount of Transfiguration. And three guys went up with him on the mountain. Look in Matthew 17, verse 1. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So let me just stop there for a moment and I want to just recount this passage that Peter's referring to in Second Peter 1, going all the way back. Um, uh, all of this is found in Matthew 17 and Mark 9 and Luke 9. And I want to deal with just one more thing as to why you and I, before we kind of just summarize the Mount of Transfiguration, why we believe the Scripture revelation. Listen, this is, this is the biggest one. Because when they were on the mountain, the Father came down. And the Father said to, out loud, so that Peter, James, and John could hear it. And he said, I am pleased with this one right here. He's my beloved son. And I'm affirming the glory of who he is. And so Peter writes it in Second Peter 1, he says this, And the voice born by majestic glory said this, This is my beloved Son, and with Him I'm well pleased. There's not anybody on the earth that I'm well pleased, but Him, I'm pleased with Him. And so you listen to Him. You listen to Him. And so one of the reasons why we affirm the scriptural testimony from the eyewitnesses is this, is that they heard the Father's affirmation 
of, watch this, of the glory of Jesus. And when the Father says this, listen, listen, church, listen. When the Father said, this is my beloved Son, He is saying this, He is in essence with me. We are one. He is God. I am the Father. He is the Son. He's God. I'm God. We are the same essence with one another. He is affirming that Jesus is God. Not a man, not a prophet, not a good person, not a really nice guy. No, this is God. This is God. So the Father's pleasure and affirmation of Jesus says the Scriptures are to be trusted because they are the revelation of who He is. Well, let's just talk about this for a moment as we close. Why did He only take three of them up on the mountain? I don't know if you ever wondered that. Why these three? Would you not have wanted to go if you were one of the twelve? Man, wouldn't you like to see a foretaste of the second coming of Jesus? Why did He take these three? It's pretty simple. Who were the three most strategic people in the early years of the church? It was Peter, James, and John. John wrote a tremendous amount of the New Testament. Peter was the early leader of the church. Does anybody know what role James eventually took in the early church? He was the pastor of the Jerusalem church. Can you think of, of the 12, any three that are more important to see a foretaste of the second coming of Jesus up on the mountain to give eyewitness testimony than these three? So I think the answer is pretty simple. These three had a very unique role. Luke 9 tells us that when they got up the mountain, they were tired. Mount Hermon's about 9,000 feet up. Would you be tired by the time you climbed 9,000 feet up in the air? So it says they got up on the mountain and Jesus was praying and they fell asleep, probably exhausted. And Jesus is praying. And again, he had told them, truly I say to you, um, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the man, son of man, coming in his kingdom. And so these three guys are about to get a glimpse of the second coming of Jesus and the glory that's going to accompany when he comes. So they're overcome with sleep. They're, they're just passed out. And while Jesus was praying, he was transfigured. The Greek word is meta, what we get our English word metamorphosis, which means he was literally changed in form. Now, you remember when you were a kid and you went to bed? Or if you're a kid and you're in here and your parents say, turn your light out and don't read at night. But you got a flashlight and you got under the covers and turn the flashlight on but if your parents ever came in and opened up the door they could see what they could see the light in there right because the light comes through now watch what happens on the mountain jesus is wearing clothing and the eternal majesty and magnificence of who he is just lights up and it shines through his clothes and again these guys are trying to use not english words but they're trying to use Hebrew words and Greek words to describe it. And this is all they could say. His head looked like the sun. Have you gone outside and stared at the sun lately? Can you, ima- can you imagine far away looking up on Mount Hermon going, what in the world is going on up there? Well, the transformed second coming glory of Jesus was shining up there. Well, the apostles wake up. And it's a pretty amazing thing. Not only do they wake up and, and go, look at the glory of Jesus. 
A couple of dead guys were there from the Old Testament. I mean, would you freak out if you woke up and a couple of dead guys were standing there talking with Jesus? And so they wake up, Jesus is transformed, and there's a conversation going on, and it's Moses and Elijah. This is pretty amazing. You know what they're talking about? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us this, but Luke tells us that Moses, Jesus, and Elijah are talking about the cross. They're talking about his upcoming departure from Jerusalem. Would you like to listen in on that conversation? So they they wake up, and Jesus is glorious, and there's a conversation happening and taking place. That would have been amazing. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses was the lawgiver, right? Who does Elijah represent? The greatest of all the prophets. So here you have Moses giving the law that foreshadowed and told of the coming of Jesus and the glory of Jesus. Here you have Elijah. Prophets spoke about the coming of Jesus, representative. And so here now you have the ones who wrote and the representative of the, of the law pointing to Jesus, the prophets pointing to Jesus, and they're talking to Jesus. The pointers to Jesus are talking to the one they've been pointing to in their writing. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. Moses and Elijah don't seem so shocked about this moment either, for they had written and waited for this moment for so many generations of man. Remember what Philip told Nathaniel, John 1, 45. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. We found him. We found him. Luke 24, 44, in the day of the resurrection. Then he said to them, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, it must be fulfilled. So Moses represents the great law, Elijah, the great proclaimer of the truth of the way in regard to the prophets. And so here you have on the mountain, not only in the moment the Father's going to speak, but now you've got Moses, the lawgiver. You have Elijah, representative of all the prophets, giving extra testimony that this one who's here is the Son of Man. He's God. He's God. Well, Peter thinks, man, this is pretty awesome. (laughs) Hey, Lord... Let's just stay up here. I want to build a tabernacle for Moses and Elijah and Jesus. I want to build one for you. Are you like Peter? He didn't, he he spoke before he thought things through. Do you know what he does there? He makes all three of them equal. Are they equal? No. No. And so the father says, uh, hello, wait, wait, wait. I got something to say now. Peter, do this, please. And this glorious light comes from a cloud and a voice comes. Peter calls it the maje- this, this voice born of majestic glory. And then later Peter says in 18, he says, born from heaven, born of heaven, of heaven. This voice is, was the heavenly voice. And so the Father speaks, and Peter is saying, man, let's make this permanent. Let's just stay here. Let's make the moment 
permanent. He's just saying this, basically, this has got to be kingdom glory. I don't want everyone to leave here. Can we just live here? Can we just live here? And the Father says this. He says, Matthew 17, 5, and he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to them. And the Father just says this, Peter, it's time to stop speaking. And this is not an affirmation of what Peter just said, but it's kind of a rebuke for Peter. He was making Moses and Elijah, in a sense, we're just going to kind of stay up here. I'm going to make a tabernacle, and we're going to do this. And God was saying, no, all honor and glory only goes to my son. Doesn't go to anybody else. Jesus was not a contemporary of Moses nor Elijah. He is the creator of Moses and Elijah. And he stands out. Well, they're coming down the mountain. Verse 6 says this. When the, well, it says they, they fall in fear. But in verse 9 it says this. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anybody about this until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And so they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. And so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understand that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. Why did he not want them to tell about this? Well, the ultimate purpose of his first coming hadn't even happened yet. The cross hadn't happened yet. So he's saying, hey, hold, hold the brakes on the second coming because my fulfillment of the first coming has not taken place yet. And what he's saying to them is this, what you saw up on the mountain today isn't for now. It's for later, but you've got a taste of what's going to come. And I think as Peter's writing these words in his early 70s, I think he's thinking back on this moment, and it's got to be a sweet moment. Can you imagine hearing the voice of God, the Father, saying, This is my son. I am so pleased with him. Will you listen to him? Will you listen to him? And will you follow him? So I want to close with this. Based on what Peter wrote today, he is saying to us this. Is this a sure and certain word is there enough evidence to trust God's word well Moses affirmed Christ Elijah affirmed Christ and more than that the father on the mountain came down and affirmed Christ and now Peter was saying I was there brothers sisters I was there I was there and not only did I see the glorious first coming But I got a taste of his second coming when he's going to come back and he's going to establish his kingdom. And he's saying, said, listen, you can trust what I've written to you because I saw it. And not only did I see it, but I heard it. He was an eyewitness and he was an ear witness as well. And so he says, you can trust because this isn't a bunch of lies. Isn't that beautiful? Tender heart of an apostle who's saying to us, here we are, however many years later, 1,900 years later. And he loves you and I so much that he wrote something down under the leadership of the Spirit so that on this day in March, you and I would know with certainty that there's a place to go for the biggest questions of life. 
and we can know that it's, we can have confidence in it and trust it. Let's pray.